0: Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate and energise the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 110 of Control the Controllables. If you are a fan of 70s, 80s, 90s or noughties tennis, then this is an episode for you.
1: He serves like hard slider down the tee and he hit it right on the line. Truck did fly up, and you see me stretching, you know, for a forehand return and just missing the ball. You know, I had the short shorts and the big hair and the whole thing. I had it all rocking pretty good there. And uh, then you see McEnroe going off at this English, old English umpire. Oh, you cannot be serious! Truck flew up. He was changing sides, and then. You know, the whole thing, you know. And that was, of course,
0: Tom Gullickson. Tom Gullickson, the captain of the Davis Cup 1995 USA winning team, where he had Andre Agassi in his team, Pete Sampras, Jim Currier, Michael Chang. How did he manage all of those characters? He was a Wimbledon finalist with his twin brother, Tim. He was a mixed doubles winner of the US Open, as high as number four in the world in doubles, 34 in the world in singles. He is one of the best storytellers that I've ever had the pleasure to speak to. And when he's telling story after story about Bjorn Borg and Jim Currier and Jimmy Connors and Pete Sampras and his late brother Tim Gullickson, who he was so kind to share so much emotion and so many great stories about, I just sat back and listened and just was so highly entertained throughout this podcast, and and I know you guys will be as well. So i I would fully recommend whatever you're doing. Sit down, get the tissues by the side up by the side because you're gonna have a few tears in this one, and and also get ready to laugh a lot. Okay, so enjoy, Tom Gullickson. So Tom Gullickson, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm doing well,
1: Daniel. Thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you. And I, it, I almost feel a bit guilty that we're now jumping into the, the show because we've just had such a good chat there off air. I maybe should have pressed the record button a bit earlier.
1: Well, you know, we, we could have told some stories that uh, the, the, probably the people shouldn't hear. But, uh, yeah, no, that was a good chat, a good warm up.
0: Absolutely, and and like any of these podcasts that we've done, like I said, Tom, you're you well in the hundreds here now on the podcast. It's been it's been a brilliant experience. We like to start with where the whole tennis passion started uh, back in the day. You know where, where where your journey, your tennis journey started.
1: Well, that's uh, that's a simple question, Daniel. Uh, when uh, twin identical twin brother Tim and I were five years old and identical twins we had it we were bringing a lot of energy to every day my mother was pulling her hair out and uh, she looked right across the street about 30 steps uh, straight across the street there was uh, eight tennis courts and a practice wall at the University of Wisconsin uh, lacrosse so we, we were born and Raised in Lacrosse in Onalaska, Wisconsin, not exactly a tennis mecca of, of great, you know, professional players. But so, yeah, when my Timmy and I were five, my mom took us across the street. They had a summer recreation program where the high school tennis coach, Bill Baker, would would teach lessons to the kids in the in the recreation and parks uh, program. So we started chasing balls around for the kids and then naturally grabbed a racket. And uh, we started playing when we were five years old. So I hit my first tennis ball when I was five and, and we totally fell in love with it. And I had my uh, built-in practice uh, partner with twin brother, Tim. So I never had to go scrounging around for a hit. And by the time we were eight, we were very, very good. And, uh, you know, people always say, well, when did you turn pro? And I I have to say, I turned pro at the age of eight because two doors down from us, there were uh, seven college guys living in this like three-story house. And on Friday afternoons, they had a uh, college uh, PE tennis class that would get over at three o'clock. And a lot of the, the, the kids that take the pe- tennis class would stick around and, and practice and play. And my buddies you know, were looking to make their beer money for the weekend. Uh, so they called us Tim Tom because they couldn't tell us apart. They'd say, hey, Tim Tom, let's go over and find a couple suckers over here. So they would take us across the street onto the tennis courts and walk up to the two biggest guys they could find. And they'd say, hey, I bet my two little eight-year-old buddies could beat you two guys in tennis, you know. And they just laugh. You know, they would look at us, and they're like four foot nothing. And uh, you know, they would say, "Sure, let's." They would have their their wager, and literally, Tim and I always won. We always won, and they would pay off their bet, and they would they would give us a quarter apiece. Our cut was a quarter, twenty-five cents apiece, and we. Get on our bikes and go down to the ice cream shop at the, you know, a couple blocks away and buy an ice cream cone. So, I, I basically was taking money when I was eight years old. So that's when I really officially turned pro.
0: Tom, we're done. It's the best story out of all 110 podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to go any further.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those is- were those were good memories. Those were really good memories. Well, a lot
0: that is amazing. And and with Tim, uh, one of the, and, and I'd like to get into speaking about Tim and certainly into your older, older kind of tennis, tennis age groups after, but how much of an advantage, and you've already kind of touched on that, but to have a twin brother who, who had the passion for tennis that you have, how much of an advantage was it to have that, like you say, a live in sparring partner? Uh,
1: it was a massive advantage, Daniel. Um, and, you know, I, I will say, you know, a lot of people would try to pit us against each other. And we were so close, you know, being identical twins. That, and we were very, very even growing up. That we would typically, in the Wisconsin state tournaments, we would play in two age groups, you know, like, you know, like the 12 and under and 14 and under. And I would win one and then he would win the next. And it was always worked out where we would split Right. And I think it was an unconscious thing where, where if I won the first one, I would feel kind of bad for him. So, you know, and I wouldn't let him win, but I wasn't unhappy when he won, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, we, we kind of pushed each other and we dreamed a little bit and, and we knew there was something more in the world rather than just being in Lacrosse, Wisconsin, and, and which is a beautiful town, but we knew, hopefully there was something bigger and better for us. And my, My father was a uh, barber and my mother was a homemaker and she kind of worked in a grocery store a little bit. So we, we really grew up with like no money. So never played in a national junior tournament, uh, never took a private tennis lesson. And Tim got up to 15 in the world and I got up to 20, 23, I think. And, you know, we did pretty well in doubles. So. Yeah, we, we never, ever played a national junior tournament. And we only got one college scholarship offer from northern Illinois. We, oh. you know, growing up in Wisconsin, we, of course, wanted to go to the University of Wisconsin. And at the time, one of the only indoor college facilities in the country was the A.C. Nielsen Indoor Center in Madison. So we used to play a lot of high school matches there. And uh, unfortunately, they didn't offer us a scholarship, so we couldn't go to UW. So we ended up going to Northern Illinois and DeKalb, which was Division One yeah. uh,
0: as well. Was it looking at it almost like a different way? And I know you've gone on and you've, you've worked for the USTA. You've been involved at the very highest level of the sport. Was it in some ways, on reflection, an advantage that you didn't have the help that you didn't have under understand what was out there and you just had to work i guess for everything almost in quite an authentic way rather than maybe the kids that are picked up by federations from an early age have a heap of pressure put on them and they have all of these things i get how do you how do you reflect on that now
1: yeah well when you know i think when tim and i were playing on the tour we basically played he played one year longer than me he he was uh teaching in Dayton, Ohio, right after college, we graduated in 73. And he went to Dayton, Ohio to took a job at a club there as a a, a head pro. And uh, he met a guy by the name of Hank Jungle, who was actually from New Orleans, he played number one at Tulane. And uh, he was a, a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And he was winning all the kind of prize money tournaments around Dayton and Cincinnati, until this young guy from from Northern Illinois from Wisconsin Tim Gullickson showed up and he started winning everything and he Tim was a really good athlete and you know because we you know didn't have the the funds just to play tennis full time we were all state basketball players we played one year at Northern Illinois we played on the freshman team we played baseball we played all the sports growing up and looking at it now I'm 69 years old I've never had a surgery I've got all my own body parts. You know, I was at the U S open three years ago and I'm walking in to the, to the building there and players lounge. And I hear that, Hey, Gully, what's going on? It's Jimmy Connors and, and Connors and Tim and I were good buddies and I played him a lot. And we practiced with Jimmy and have a few beers with him and go golfing with him and stuff. And it, we we're like talking and reminiscing and, he goes, yeah, I'm on my third hip. He said, I got two hips in me, and I got one hanging up in the garage. He said, How are you doing? He goes, I said, Well, you know, I've got all my original body parts, and I've never even had a surgery, which for a pro tennis player is pretty amazing.
0: And you, and you would put that down to the playing the other sports as well.
1: I think so. Yeah, you know, when you when you play other sports, your your kind of body kind of evens out, and you learn, like in basketball, we played a lot of basketball, which is a lot of stopping and starting and dynamic, you know, explosive movement and dynamic jumping. And you, know, you need, obviously, in tennis, you know, one of the core principles of being a good tennis player is, is loading and using the ground virtually every shot. So, you know, you know, playing basketball was a great kind of training ground for tennis in terms of uh, cross-training, if you will.
0: Absolutely. And I have to just pull you back there a little bit. You mentioned that Tim, after college, was a teaching pro. And is so So d- was it not a case if you went to college, played college, and then now we're going on the pro tour? It sounds like it was actually you went and got, got jobs and then what, fell, fell into being professional tennis players? How did that work out?
1: Yeah, well, you know, because we didn't play the national junior, you know, guys – kind of our age, American guys were like, you know, Connors, uh, Eddie Dibbs, Harold Solomon, Roscoe Tanner, Sandy Mayer, Dick Stockton, Brian Godfried. In the year, Timmy, Timmy finished 1979, 18 in the world, and he was 11 in the U.S. Oh, wow. When I was interviewing for the head job at the USTA, I said to Gordon Smith, who was the executive director, I said, Gordon, Tim and I played in the golden era of men's professional tennis. In 79, Tim Gullickson was ranked 18 in the world, and he was 11 in the U.S. He was even in the top 10. And now our number one player in the U.S. is ranked 25 or something in the world, you know, Isner, I think. Why? So, uh,
0: Why, though? That, so that's uh, a yeah. – I can't let you go on that because that's a uh... – that's a massive topic. That is, you know, if we're talking yeah. about the dominance that it was then compared to, for the size of the USA, the relative success that it does or doesn't have now.
1: In my mind, every, every kind of country has its own brand. You know, the U S isn't going to be Spain and Spain's not going to be the U S and England's not going to be France, you know, and, and, a lot of the federations have tried that. They've, they've hired people from other countries to try to inject kind of their kind of culture and brand, if you will.
0: I was going to say, I thought England was Belgium for a while. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it doesn't work. And I told this to the USTI. I said, listen, you know, we were playing and we had all these great American players to, to battle with. You know, all those guys I mentioned, you know, Connors, you know, McEnroe, Dib, Solomon, Godfrey, Tanner, you know, you name it, Dickie Stockton, you know, we had a brand, you know, American tennis. What did, what did it mean to, to play an American? American guys were really good athletes. They were great competitors. They were tough. They had really good kind of aggressive games, you know, even within whatever style they played, they were playing to win. They were not playing not to lose. Yep. And so that was the brand. And I think a lot of places, they don't have a brand, you know, and Americans by nature are kind of aggressive. They're hardworking. They go for it. They dream big. They, that should be kind of the baseline of, of how you want to structure a program for American players.
0: Yeah, And I I feel that actually, I mean, obviously we we spoke off air. I went to LSU and Mm -hmm. and before I went to LSU, I was probably ranked 50 or 60 in the world juniors, Mm -hmm. singles and top 10 in the world doubles. Mm -hmm. I thought I was rubbish. You know, I was in an environment where we had Martin Lee, who was world junior number one. We Mm -hmm. had, you know, we had, we had good, good players who I was training with. And, and I think probably the, the UK, the, there's, we downplay things. We're a bit dour on certain things. And I went to America and everyone was like, so upbeat. And so mm-hmm. like, and I remember after, and it worked, worked for me after like three weeks, I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm good. I'm really yeah. good. You yeah. know, I felt it. And, and, and that brand that you're talking about, it was very clear to me. That was also mm-hmm. what a, what a college player did.
1: Mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you
0: served big. You came forward. Mm-hmm. You know, you looked to hit big forehands. You looked to finish at the net. You exactly. You were aggressive the way you played doubles, and that was what back in '98. And again, that massively suited me. Do, mm-hmm. do you feel that that's not there anymore?
1: Well, I, I think people have kind of lost their way a little bit. It was interesting. I love listening to Federer and Nadal and you know, joke I love listening to all these kind of interviews and and you know i love getting the players thinking it's one thing to watch them play and they're all amazing players but i love the process they go through Mm -hmm. the thought process and how great their minds are and better said something really interesting and he's 100 percent right i think the question was well why aren't these guys beating you now i mean Mm -hmm. You and, and, and Nadal, you know, you're 38 or 39, and Nadal's 33, five, four, or five, and Djokovic is in his early 30s. These young guns should be beating you guys, you know, just like you started beating you know, the older players when you were coming up. And he said, you know, most of those guys hit the ball great, but they have no clue how to transition or finish at the net. You know, they have a very kind of one dimensional game. And, you know, one of my own personal coaching philosophies and when I was director of coaching for the USTA, when I work with the pros, my goal is to help create players who are aggressive all court players. And I call it the three C's. I want you to be competent, confident, and comfortable in all three parts of the court, mm-hmm. the back court. The midcourt, which is a big mystery to a lot of players, and also the front court, which is normally where they go to shake hands and pick up the big cardboard check at the end of the tournament. They have no clue what the front court is about. Yeah. They have a little bit of mystery about the midcourt, uh, only hitting winners from the midcourt. maybe they can step up and whack a big forehand or something. But you know, most of our junior players now, you know, 95% of their tennis experience is just at the baseline, whacking balls as hard as they can with a set of Luxilon and, you know, strung kind of loose and swinging yeah. hard and ripping big topspin balls and maybe flattening out a higher one. But, uh, you know, there's, I don't think coaches and academies and federations spend enough time in skill development. Yeah. When you look at Federer, now he goes to a court. If you, if you compare him to a bow hunter, okay. He goes out bow hunting and he's got 20 arrows in his quiver. And if one arrow he misses with one, he grabs another arrow and shoots another arrow. So when he walks on a tennis court, he's got 20 arrows. This is something I learned from my late brother, Tim. He was big on this <laughs> quiver thing. He goes, you know, I want you to have a lot of arrows. I want you to have more arrows than the guy that you're playing against. And, you know, Timmy coached Sampras for five years and got him winning Wimbledon every year. Pete's record before he started working with Tim was two first round losses and one second round loss. Mm-hmm. He had no clue how to play on grass before he met Tim Gullikson. And, you know, Tim played me every day of his life. So nobody was better at returning a lefty serve because I had a good lefty serve. Timmy played me every day. He had a great backhand return. He had the block, he had the nice chip, and he and he drove the ball, but he'd stay on the plane of the ball. He wouldn't come up on it too much. And Sampras, he would try to turn against a lefty serve, and his swing plane on his backhand return was almost straight up. Yep. And if a ball's coming 130 on a on a, on a horizontal plane and your racket is strings are going vertically up the chances of those two meeting are not very good so you know timmy taught him how to return serve against a lefty and uh he won wimbledon seven out of the next eight years yeah so not 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 a bad not a bad uh, result there for, for young pete sampras and uh, you know, Timmy passed away at uh, 44 in May of 96. And Pete actually put his. Uh... Take your time. Yeah, Pete uh, put his first Wimbledon trophy in the casket. And he said. Tim not only taught me how to be a Wimbledon champion, taught me how to be a winner in life. And Wimbledon was so touched by that. And obviously, you know, they took the trophy out and gave it to the family, Rosemary and the kids, Eric and Megan. Wimbledon, who's not in the habit of making Wimbledon trophy replicas, they made Pete a replica of that trophy because they were so touched by that
0: an amazing so thank you for sharing that story and in 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 terms of in terms of tim mm-hmm. and what i think some sometimes in life we we don't realize what we have until we lose it and right. and, and 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 you know we're talking now 25 years you know right. and, and how how much of an impact has tim been for you over the last 25 years through not being here and and the lessons that he taught you and and your relationship that you obviously have had that's been so special.
1: Yeah, well, I still miss him every day. Um, Think about him a lot. And, uh, you know, there were kind of over 900 people at his funeral. So he obviously wasn't, you know, there's some people you meet that are real impact players and, you know, Timmy, Timmy had a real positive impact. You know, he was, he was a hell of a player. He was a great competitor and he didn't have that many arrows in his quiver, but you know, he would win his matches eight, six in the fifth. He beat Ramirez one, one year on court two at Wimbledon, eight, six in the fifth. He took out Johnny Mac in Mm -hmm. 79, uh, four, two and four on court, court two. And, uh, I had lost to Johnny Mac in the third round that year. And so Timmy's playing Johnny Mac uh, in the round of 16 on court two. He's up. He's playing great. He always played great against lefties. You know, he's up six, four, six, two, five, one, you know, just toying with him five, two, five, three, five, four. Serving for the match at 5-4, 15-40. Oh. he serves a second serve and he stays back. And he was a serving volleyer uh, of the highest order. Stays back. Mac hits that little bunt backhand return that he used to hit, that block kind of bunt. Timmy takes a short ball, rips the approach, comes in, knocks off the volley, wins like six-four in the in the in the third set. And um, People go nuts, obviously. McEnroe was the second seed, I think, yeah. that year. And uh, Court Two, of course, was called the Graveyard Court because yeah. the seeds didn't like playing there. And uh, Timmy goes in the press room after the match and he goes, Nobody beats the Gully Brothers back to back.
0: Brilliant. <laughs> yeah,
1: good stuff. You know,
0: it, absolutely amazing. And 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 how how special was 1983, the the year that you guys made a Wimbledon final together?
1: That was fun because uh, we had gotten divorced the year before. We we okay. spent, took a year off in '82. We had gotten a little stale, and you know, my singles had, had dropped a bit, and. I think he felt a little extra pressure to do really well in doubles. Cause I wasn't doing so well in singles at the time. And he was playing much better singles than me. So we kind of took a year off and he, he kind of played with Johan Creek for a year. And, yeah. you know, I was playing with Ferdy Tagan a little bit. I played with Mike Cahill quite a bit, who was a good player from Wisconsin as well. Uh, we played number one at Alabama when he went to, to college, but, um, yeah, and that year was kind of fun playing with different players because obviously, as you know, Dan, being a, a good doubles player, you, you pick up you know, bits and pieces from everyone you play doubles with, you know, and if you can find one little nugget from everybody you play with, you know, you, it just adds to your overall ability as a doubles yeah. player. And then we got back together in 83, I had a great year. Uh, you know, we won the two warm-up tournament. We won Queens and
0: right, we won okay. Bristol, and
1: yeah, then, yeah. Uh, and then you know, we ended up losing to Johnny and uh, and Peter Fleming. You know, in the final, but uh, it was pretty uh, special. You know, we're here. We are two boys from Lacrosse, Wisconsin, who yeah. never had a private lesson and never played a national junior tournament, getting our runner-up uh, medals uh, from from the Duke and Duchess of Kent. You know, and Timmy looks over at me with this great smile that he had, and he goes, "Not bad for a couple of small-town boys from on Alaska, Wisconsin." Man. So we uh, we enjoyed that. Yeah, that was great.
0: Nobody can ever take those memories away from you, Tom. No. You know, and it's I, as and I know it, it is an emotive topic, and I think you know it's so lovely hearing the stories on Tim. You know, and I think everyone in in the tennis world followed followed obviously the story with pete sampras so closely and if we you know we go back to 1995 mm-hmm. you know the australian open right you know when you know pete was pete was in tears on the court and right how how was that moment i guess at the, at the time did you know how ill he was at the time what was
1: yeah well he had you know uh, unfortunately and in- we had, you know, I uh, had real fears in 94. I mean, it happened to him twice in 94. He, uh, he, he had an incident in, a, in the hotel room in Stockholm where he was ordering a transport car and uh, you know, the, the house phone in his hotel room and they got the grand they were staying was on a like a plate glass table and he and he kind of had a seizure and he fell against the plate glass table and cut up his face and Mm -hmm. and he somehow you know must have passed out but he crawled out to the hallway and bob brett who unfortunately passed away you know recently who was a great guy and a great coach bob brett was like going to his room and he saw tim and they you know got him to the hospital right away, and and uh, unfortunately they, n- they never checked his brain. They checked his heart, and like a lot of pro athletes, he had a little bit of an enlarged heart. And they mm-hmm. thought it was some kind of a heart issue, but they never really did a brain scan. And then fast forward six weeks, Timmy's with Pete over in Germany, uh, at the ATP Finals. You know, Tim's lovely wife, Rosemary, was an intensive care nurse before she became a lawyer. And he was speaking to her on the on the phone from the hotel and he started garbling his words. So he she immediately knew he was having a seizure. So she hung up and called the hotel and sure enough, they went up to the room and he was having this, another seizure. So they got him to the hospital there. So he'd already had two incidents and then I was actually with him uh, because, uh, you know, I was with Tim and I think Pete was playing his second round match at the Australian. We were in the locker room and he didn't really look good. And uh, right before Pete went out to play his second round, you know, Tim had a seizure, you know, kind of like a, like an epileptic fit almost or in the locker room and in the fortunately the, the hospital is only five minutes, you know, from Melbourne park. So we got him to the hospital right away and they did take a brain scan. And, and unfortunately the doctor gave me the terrible news that he kind of thought it was brain cancer. And those four spots looked like four tumors, you know, but couldn't confirm that. Um, until you take a biopsy of course, and take, a little piece of it out and they certainly weren't going to do that there. So I actually stayed in the hospital with him, uh, for like three or four nights. And, uh, the last night we were there, um, you know, Pete was obviously really upset and everybody was upset. because Tim, Tim was a pretty popular guy and, uh, we were getting a lot of visitors and, uh, The night before I flew him back to Chicago, uh, the doctor said, well, why don't you, uh, Tim's pretty heavily medicated. Uh, He's not really in danger of having another seizure. So why don't you get him out of the hotel and go to dinner? So I got a a group of very special close friends like Ian Hamilton, who was a Nike guy, who was great friends of Tim and I, and Todd Martin, Uh, Who was a close friend of mine and Tim's, and you know, I coached Todd for a while through the USTA, and uh, Jim Courier, who was very close to to, to me and Tim and Pete. And we all went out to dinner and just to show our support for Tim, you know. And uh, Pete and Jim were playing against each other the next day, right? Okay, clearly they were real rivals uh, for grand slam titles, so you know, they were. Friends and they really respected each other on and off the court, but they weren't exactly hanging out. They all had their own little teams, you know, that they spent time with. And uh, yeah, well, I'll never forget. We went out to the a really nice restaurant for dinner and just Timmy was there and just, you know, everybody was just there, you know, to support him, you know, and then the, the next day I, I flew him back to Chicago and then he had the, he had a biopsy to, to see what was in, in there. And sure enough, it was brain cancer, you know? And then that, that day, that was the day that I think Pete and Jim played in the quarterfinal.
0: And and such, such a tragic, tragic story, Tom. And I think, but what a lovely memory that you are able to have to, to be able to have, have that mm -hmm. time with, with those players and, and, and one thing that was was that, that really sprung to mind when I was looking into into your career a little bit more before before this talk mm-hmm. was that you then went on to win the Davis Cup with USA mm-hmm. in nineteen ninety-five. Right. You then went on to be Team USA captain when Andre won won the gold medal in nineteen ninety-six. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know how I guess how were you able to cope at that time with that going on? And then how special were those victories almost that that I'm sure at the time were very much dedicated to Tim as well?
1: No doubt. No, I, I leaned on Tim a lot for advice, especially with Pete, because I mean, Tim and Pete had a really special bond. I mean, not only, you know, did, did Tim really teach Pete a lot about tennis he taught him a lot about how to compete. He, he put the compete in Pete.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. He added the COM part, you know? Yeah. And, uh, he, he told Pete one time, he goes, you know what? He, he, cause Pete was, uh, Pete was, you know, he was an artist. He wasn't like a more mechanical player like Lendl or courier who yeah. were out doing grills, you know, six hours a day. And, you know, he, he was an artist. He had to like feel the ball. And he told Timmy, you know, who got up to 15 in the world, being an amazing competitor, you know, he told Tim when they first started, he goes, you know, you know, some days I just don't feel the ball, you know, I don't feel the ball. And on the days where I'm not striking the ball, I'm not saying that I I accept losing, but I almost kind of feel like I'm going to lose. Tim just kind of looked at him and he goes, (laughs) dude, he goes, you have every shot in the book. You're an unbelievable athlete. You're one of the top three or four athletes on the tour in terms of movement and jumping and and just dynamic, you know, balance. And, and, you, and you've got incredible hands. You can do anything with the ball. He goes, on the day he kind of grabbed, he had like a white T-shirt on, right? And so he, he kind of grabbed Pete by the collar. And he goes, he goes, Pete. That's not acceptable. As long as I'm coaching you, that's hundred percent not acceptable. On the days where you're not feeling it, where you're not Mr. Artist, like striking the ball really clean. He said, take this little white Palos Verdes collar off and put your blue collar on and beat the guy being an athlete and a competitor. You're not always going to have your a tennis game. So on the days, you know, there's, there's the three pieces right there there's there's a tennis player as an athlete as a competitor and and uh you know and you got the the actual, actual tennis game yeah but beat him as an app a competitor beat him with your physicality be a better athlete than this guy yeah and uh you know pete really learned how to compete you know that was one of the great gifts that that tim added to San Francisco's game other than the technical skills of like how to return serve and how to play against lefties. I mean, Pete couldn't beat a lefty. Yep. I mean, in the, in the 91, I think Davis got final. we lost to France and he lost to Leconte and forget both in straight sets, you know, cause he couldn't return a lefty, serve. Right. And then after Timmy started coaching Pete and teaching him how to hit a backhand return and teaching him how to play against lefties in terms of positioning and the, the patterns and everything that you ha- totally have to switch against a lefty Pete's record with against lefties after that was like 45 and oh or something. So right, okay. he was like, never lost to a lefty. So, so Pete, uh, you know, Timmy taught Pete a lot of lessons, you know, just tennis lessons and then off court stuff as well. Tim treated everyone the same. He would teach, treat Leo the locker room guy at Wimbledon the yeah. same as Phil Knight, the CEO of Nike. You know, yeah yeah he
0: you know, had a had a nice word for everyone lovely for other for everyone else to hear those stories tom and i know that they haven't been easy stories to tell but you know i think i think for for people to be able to hear those stories and and the impact that tim has had on had on so many you know is 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 just incredible and and i just if you don't mind just one one more thing to delve in on that of what you said i in terms of teaching a backhand return, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: a backhand return is a backhand return, I guess it's a skill that Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's easy, but the ability to teach someone to be able to compete. Mm -hmm. It's, it's almost like the, the, the holy grail of, of being Mm -hmm. a coach, you know? So, so how, how do you, how do you, or how did Tim teach the ability to compete?
1: Well, I, I think I think uh, when Timmy was working with Pete, you know, Pete, you know, Pete was such a talented player. He he had different gears, and I would say all great players have gears. Like say, yeah. if I'm an average player or you're an average player, very average. <laughs> you, you know, we we try to play as well as we can for as long as we can. Yeah. But you know, like Agassiz really. Described pete perfectly one time he told me we were at davis cup or something and he goes you know playing sampras he said i he said i could be winning my serve at love or 15 every time Yep. Yeah. and then all of a sudden at five six in the first set i'm serving to get into a tiebreak. you know i missed my first serve and he chipped charges and knocks off a volley and then he hits a running forehand you know screamer you know, down the line for a winner. And and all of a sudden he's very interested in my service game all of a sudden. And he ends up playing a great game and breaking me and he holds easy the first game and then he breaks me again. And in 10 minutes, I go from five all, you know, kind of right in it to I'm down seven, five, two love, you know, and that was Pete. I mean, Pete, he was it was like a lightning strike, you know, like a cobra. I mean, when he sensed, that he could really get into you. I mean, he had that, that, that terrific gear and uh, probably the the best thing, the best story I could tell about that with Pete was Davis cup. When I was captain, I had the privilege of being the captain for six years. And obviously I I had Sampras, Courier, Chang, uh, uh, Todd Martin, Agassi, Agassi. I had three number ones, a number two, a number four. But as I told the guys after we won, at the end of the day it all came down to coaching, you know? Yeah. They had no talent. But but <laughs> but Pete was playing uh we were in the semis of the Davis Cup. It was right after one of the US opens that Patrick Rafter had won, because he won back to back US opens. And Pete and Rafter always had a little personal thing against each other. I don't know. They always had a little edge to their relationship. And Pete kind of considered the U.S. Open his tournament because he did win it like five times, I think. So Rafter just won the Open. We're in Washington, D.C., playing Davis Cup for the first time ever in our nation's capital. And uh, he's playing uh, Rafter, uh, and we're up 2-1 in the match. He had beaten Philippus the first day. And we were up 2-0 in singles, and then we lost to the Woodies in doubles. So he's playing Rafter, and we're up 2-1. And you know, Rafter's playing amazing. Talk about an athlete serving and volleying on a 107 kick serve, you know, diving volleys, backhand overheads, you know, stretch, flick you know top
0: spin volley that was well yeah
1: no i mean you know he was ridiculous those two years he won the open what an athlete coming in on everything and virtually every point and was ending in a winner Pete had multiple break points he was up a mini break in the tiebreaker and he ends up losing the tiebreaker like nine seven or something and pete you know you know everybody's different in davis cups some guys like to talk some guys don't you know but Pete kind of sits down, and I, I said to him, I said, Pistol, I said, you know what, Rafter's sitting over there right now realizing he's incredibly lucky to have won that set. I mean, he had all the chances. He had all the break points. He made, he made some amazing shots. You played well on a lot of the break points. You're up the breaker. He kind of hits a let-court passing shot. You know what? I said you're this close to blowing this guy out. So I said, if you could just raise your level, raise your intensity level at the beginning of the second set, you could blow this guy out. And he just said, okay, <laughs> six one, six two, six four.
0: Wow.
1: And you know, shakes hands. Newcomb, who was very gracious. We were talking, you know, he just congratulated me, but we were talking over a beer at Wimbledon a couple of years later, and he said, "Gully, what were you saying to Sampras on that changeover?" You know, and I said, "Well, I, I was saying, you know, that Rafter probably felt he was really lucky, and uh, if to to win that set, and and uh, you're playing great tennis, if you can just up your level and your intensity level a little bit, you can blow this guy out." And I said, what were you telling Raptor <laughs> at that same moment? He laughed and he goes, I was telling Rafter. I said, listen, you know, you got kind of lucky to win that set. So, you know, he's going to be coming at you pretty hard because mm-hmm. uh, he had all the chances. So you better up your level because, you know, he's going to be coming at you. And sure enough, Pete did. And, and Newcomb did say to me at, right after the match, he goes, gully, I had no idea how intense Sampras was. Right, okay. Because everybody thought he was this real shy kind of guy. You don't win 14 grand slams without intensity. Absolutely. And he goes, you know, I'm typically watching Sampras play from a broadcast booth because he did a lot of TV for Australian TV. He said, I'm up above the center court wherever, you know, watching, and you don't see the little things, you know, mm. like, for example – like when he's serving and bowling, Pete would hit a big serve and come in and hit the return. He'd let it go, and Pete would just kind of go, he'd like blow it out. like Just little <laughs> stuff like that that's kind yeah, of yeah. fun. And, uh, yeah, uh, you know, Timmy really added that element. I think he, he, Pete really kind of embraced that he was this athlete and he could out-compete somebody. And it, it, I don't think it had ever occurred to him because he was – He was kind of in that purest kind of ball-striking school.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And he really brought that out in him and and kind of gave him a different way to win. When, you know, like Tiger Woods would say in golf, you know, I won with my C game and piss everybody off, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, Pete could win when he wasn't playing his best. And that's a real art and that's a real skill.
0: Yeah, he was just incredible at finding a first serve as well mm-hmm. wasn't he and that uh, that is that come from his confidence does that come from his, his inner belief does that come from maybe taking a little bit off does that come from years of practice where where did well, that skill you know, come a, from
1: he's got great technique you know yeah. like i said competence comes first you yes. can you can try certain things Uh, And you have to have a a huge dose of self-belief, like you said, but you also have to have a lot of courage or a lot of balls, if you will. How many times did we see him when he won the open the last time down break point, you know, uh, on the ad side, throw a kick toss over his head and hit a 120 down the tee, a second serve. Yeah, I mean, that that takes a lot of courage <laughs> absolutely. and a lot of belief. You know, most, yeah, most a lot of guys might try that shot, but most guys would hit a you know, 80 mile an hour kick to the backhand yeah. and hope for the best, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's actually
0: It's quite interesting because I think Djokovic is trying to add that to his game right now. Yeah. that 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 big second serve down down the tee. You know, yeah. it's yeah. you know these these the, the best these best players. They're always adding these other and they've always got the courage to, to be able to put it out there. And I go back to a comment you made at the start, which actually we have Soto tennis bracelets that have this very saying on, which is play to win. You mm-hmm. know, that, mm-hmm. you know, once you get into the business end of these big, big tournaments, you better yeah. be playing to win and not playing, not to lose at that moment. Well,
1: there's no question. You know, Tim and I were on a practice court with Pete one year at Wimbledon. And we were talking about this very subject that you just mentioned. And, you know, he, he said to Tim and I said, you know what? I hate to lose, but I'm not afraid to lose. Yes. And the translation is he always played to win and lesser players who have a little fear or a little courage. They don't play with the freedom and the absolute conviction of I'm going to play my game and I'm going to execute at crunch time. You know, a lot of people can execute when it's one all in the first set, but when it's five all in the tiebreaker and you have that exact same shot that you hit at one all in the first set, can you hit that shot at that time? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I have to ask you as well. You when you're talking about Davis Cup, three world number ones, world number 2 and and then as you've also said, you don't get to that ranking with having without having a pretty strong character, personality. Oh, yeah. how, how did you manage all of those personalities and characters at the same time?
1: Well, you know, everybody's different. You know, it, it, it's really, for me as a coach, what a great living laboratory to be the Davis Cup captain for six years yep. and have all these great players. And I learned a lot from every player and they all practiced different. They all had different thinking. They all had different things they liked to do. And I would always kind of cookie cut each practice and each preparation week for that specific player. I didn't try to mold them in the way I'd like to practice. If I was out practicing, like for example, for myself yep. and one day we were in in Holland. We were playing Rotterdam on a pier in, in Rotterdam, and I had Courier and Sampras playing singles, and Richie Rennenberg and Jared Palmer, who were an excellent doubles team. And Holland had Richard Krychek and Jakko Elting and Harhus and oh, uh, uh, the other guy who was pretty good. He had the sweet one-handed backhand, uh, tall guy who was ranked 20-something, 20, 20 in the world or something. But he couldn't hit a second serve, thankfully. But um, <laughs> I remember his name. Oh, Shank Shalkin. That's the one. Shang yeah, yeah so He that's was a, yeah. quite a good player. But anyway, great tie. And uh, Courier, you know, was a real workaholic. Unbelievable. I mean, he loved doing two-on-ones. He, his preparation for Davis Cup was he liked like to get up early. He was an early riser, and he would take the early court time. And we would do two-on-ones for two hours. And, you know, I didn't have to say anything to the pr- practice partners because he would bark at them if they <laughs> were missing too much so they weren't very focused. So I was like, great, Jim's playing, and he's coaching too, so I don't have to say anything. They were all afraid of Courier. They were like, shit, oh, shit, I missed a ball. Sorry, coach, you know. And, you know, so – one day we're there on the center court there, and the pier, and and Sampras is going to play at eleven. He's going to practice, and he would typically only practice for like an hour, you know. So he's watching Courier. He comes up about ten minutes to eleven, and Jim is just grinding the two on ones, and you know, Pete's just looking at him and going, you, know, you know what? He said, "I have so much respect for Jim." He said there is no way I could put in half the work he puts in to stay at the top of the game. You know, so Jim's practice, he he'd do two hours of two on one in the morning and the afternoon he'd like to play like three sets. And then he would go to the gym after that and just tear up a treadmill and lift weights and everything. And then on Wednesday, about lunchtime, you know, I'd be walking past Jim and I would say, Hey Jim, yeah, have you ever heard of the concept of tapering? And he would just laugh, you know, oh, tapering coach. Yeah, I got a cap. You know, he called me cap. I got a cap. That's where you kind of wind down a little bit. So you actually have something in the tank for your first match on Friday. Yeah. And, you know, Sanfres would, you know, he'd practice for an hour in the morning and, and uh, he'd hit down the middle kind of feeling the ball. And you have to hit it within two steps of him. Otherwise, he wouldn't run after it, you know. So I had the practice partners. I said, two steps on either side. He's a two-stepper in the warm-up. <laughs> yeah. You know, play down the middle. <laughs> Get it to him. He gets a nice rhythm going. He'll take a few volleys, and he'll play a few games. And that's pretty much it. I'm good. Yeah. I, I, I got a feel. And then Agassi would... Agassi liked to talk and he liked to bring energy. You know, he, he brought a lot of energy to the practice court. He'd get a, you know, a good warm-up and Gilbert would be there sometimes, you know, talking all the time. And, <laughs> and, and, and Agassi liked to play like three baseline games to 11. And he'd look at the practice partner, you know, some guy ranked 200 in the world or something, and he'd go, you want to play, play for 100 bucks a game? And the guy would look at me and I got, don't worry, I got you covered. You know, yeah, yeah. the USCA gave me a little slush fund <laughs> for the, for the, for the funny money, you know? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, it, it was funny. They used to give, they used to give us, uh, you know, some cash. You know, they used to give me and, and, the, and the four players and the two practice partners an envelope with some nice cash in there. And before the guys would say, Hey, gully, how you doing? They would go, where's my funny money. <laughs> These are all multi-millionaires, you know, you're worried about your cash, you know, and, and the guys would, you know, the Agassi guy want to play three games up to up to 11 for 100 a game. And the practice partner would like, it, didn't really want to play. I said, don't worry, I got you covered. Brilliant. <laughs> so, but just
0: as you're talking there, it's like, you could have been describing Rafael Nadal when you were describing Jim Courier. Mm hmm. You could have been describing Roger Federer when you were describing Pete, you know, mm-hmm. and that's and that's something I've been very I've been fortunate to experience firsthand mm-hmm. just with players I've coached who have mm-hmm. practiced with Nadal and practiced with Federer. Mm-hmm. I can't talk about McEnroe Borg, but mm-hmm. it feels as if maybe Borg was a bit more of the ilk of 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 Nadal and Courier. I don't know mm-hmm. about Johnny Mac. I guess you've as a player than as a coach you've seen so many eras now right what what are the similarities between the eras and what and what are the big changes
1: yeah i think i think the first thing i want to say is that i think champions in any era would be champions today yeah you know yeah i hate to you know who's to say that Better is better than Rod Laver, you know? I mean, yeah, yes. Rod Labor played with a wood racket, uh, didn't have the same kind of training and, and all the information that these guys have today. He didn't have sports psychologists. And uh, they uh, trained under Harry Hopman, and they did the Jim Currier approach, you know, two-on-ones for two or three hours in the morning. They'd play five sets in the afternoon, and then they do calisthenics and sprints and then they go drink you know 10 15 beers at night you know that was the Aussie way of training but you know, like McEnroe didn't really like the practice he was an artist but that's why he played doubles I mean doubles was his practice you know when he would go to a tournament he would always play singles and doubles and when Fleming wasn't there he would bring one of he'd play with one of his Stanford buddies like Peter Renard or or Bill Mays or somebody and, and he liked playing doubles and he actually would have a bit of a, he was more relaxed in doubles for sure than he was in singles. He could, yeah. he could find some things to maybe smile about in a doubles court. You'd never see him smile in the singles court. Yeah. Sure. You know, every era hopefully will learn from the eras before. And I think that's one of the things that frankly bothers me a little bit. You know, I heard Safin one time saying something like, Who's this Rod Labor guy? And come on. You know, other than the fact that an arena is named after him. How about yeah, you know, how about kind of respecting the history of the sport? I think that's one thing golf does really well. Yep. You know, the you know, when Byron Nelson was the host of the the Byron Nelson Classic in Dallas, he would, you know, as he got older he'd be sitting by the eighteenth green and all the players would shake his hand, and say, yep. Thank you and we should do that in tennis too, to the labors and Rosewalls and Stan Smiths and, you know, guys who were really, you know, they're kind of pathfinding for the players today.
0: Yeah, I feel like it happens with Lever more than any of them, mm-hmm. but, it, but it almost – I, I often think when I'm watching, where's everybody else? You know, mm-hmm. like, like Lever seems to a, appear, obviously, at Australian Open. I think they seem to do a good job and they've got an arena named after him. Mm-hmm. There's now the Lever Cup. There, 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 there seems to be quite a bit around Lever, but it, it, exactly that. I, I, I think it's really important. And I, I've got an academy. And mm-hmm. we. so what we do is we we put our players into different teams and mm-hmm. we'll we'll use greats of the game as the team names and it's mm-hmm. and it's amazing how many of them are like oh, who's that so so then right. the first the first thing they have to do is they have to research right player and they have right. to present on their player nice. Because, nice. because we have to respect the sport if we don't respect oh, yeah. the sport what have we got
1: yeah and and yeah you know, each generation should be better than the generation before because you can build on what they did and then with the advances in technology and training methods and everything i mean you know theoretically every sport should advance i mean you look at the the you know the record uh, olympic records in swimming you know i mean they're swimming you know faster and faster than they've ever done and and tennis should keep improving as well you know really should
0: Absolutely. And to move you into the federation, and I know you've worked at the USTA, spent a lot of time at the USTA. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm really curious on, and we've, we've talked quite a bit on this today is around the the individuality of, of the sport, you Mm -hmm. know, and like we are talking about the difference in training, the difference in communication styles. So then when it comes to a federation, how does a federation get it right? Because I guess, I'm a believer that systems as such don't work because it's too generic. So first and foremost, what do you believe a federation like a USDA, what do you believe that their fundamental role is within player development?
1: Well, I would say their the first role should be to have a robust tournament structure all the way from the juniors to the Pro circuits event. One of the things I think the USTA does quite well. And I know Dan, you know, because you played and coached on the USTA, uh, you know, satellite and challenger circuits and, you know, to, to provide competitive opportunities at home. So you don't have to travel to four corners of the world to get the coveted ATP or WTA points. So I think that's obligation, number one. I think the USTA has done a pretty good job on that overall. Number two, I think when you have a program, programs always have limits. But within a program, you should have individuality. Like you said, tennis, you should not try to create a bunch of robots who all play the same way. I mean, Borg could have never been McEnroe. And Mac would have shot himself if he had to be bored, you know, <laughs> playing from the back of the court and, and, you know, just getting balls back and hitting one more. I know they, they asked Borg one time, you know, he was a man, of few words. They asked Bjorn, God, you won 11 grand slams in a short period of time. And you, know, you won like six French opens and you won five Wimbledon. I mean, how did you win all those grand slams? And he thought about it for a second and he goes, well, you know, most of the time uh, when the ball would come, I would hit it cross court. And every once in a while, I'd hit one down the line. I go, OK, you won 11 grand slams hitting it cross court most of the time. And every once in a while, hit one down the line. Yeah. And, and like I actually got a set from Borg at the French Open in 79 second round. I won my first round match at the French and like most Yanks, it wasn't all that good on red clay i never hit a ball on red clay until i was 24 years old so <laughs> so it's not like i had a lot of experience playing on clay but i just played my servant volley game and played really super aggressive and so borg in the first round that year beat my buddy terry moore who was a pretty good american player beat him 0-0 and one and he threw him the courtesy game at five 0 in the okay. third set so i'm like watching this match i'm going geez, terry's <laughs> not bad on, on clay. And Borg just had to give him a game. And I said, I'm playing second round, uh, at, which is kids day, which is Wednesday. And they have all the kids there at the French and okay. What do I'm going to do it? Consult my best coach, which was Tim Gullickson. And he goes, well, you can't stay back with the guy. I mean, he will come in second every time. So, okay. Serve and volley every time he misses the first serve, I'll either hit a forehand or, Knife a backhand and get in and and make him pass me right away. Don't give him any rhythm. The only time we're going to have a rally is when he hits a first serve in. And, you know, I lost the first set, like 7-5. I won the second set, like 6-4, I think. And then uh, I lost the third set. And, uh, you know, after the third set at that time, if one of the two players wanted a 10-minute break, you could take it. And I'd already changed, you know, shirts like five times. And, and Borg's not even sweating, you know. I mean, his resting heart rate was 38. Right. Yeah. I mean, the guy was so fit and he was incredibly fast. He was like a 10.0 hundred 100-meter guy, you know. So I immediately said, yeah, I need the break. So, uh, you know, I run into the locker room there and shower up and he's just literally sitting on the bench with berglin they're not saying a word they're just sitting there and i swear the guy hadn't even broken a sweat yet and he ended up beating me like six four in the fourth but you know i got a set from him on red clay yeah. that was my yeah. career highlight on the clay
0: didn't you beat him once
1: i beat him once indoors in miami yeah an okay. indoor tournament yeah that's, uh, that's a nice yeah. story to have as well that was How- a nice that was a nice win. Yeah, I beat Borg. I, I beat Edberg twice. I beat Nastasi a few times. Yeah, I, I beat Connors twice. Those were good wins because Connors didn't give away anything. Yeah, I'm sure. At, at any tournament. Yeah, you don't win 109 tournaments uh, by not being an amazing competitor. Talk about a competitor. I think Connors has to go down as one of the greatest competitors who's ever played the sport, male or female.
0: Incredible. And how how good was Borg? Because he stopped at twenty-six, didn't he? Twenty-six-11. Borg,
1: Borg moved unbelievably well. Uh okay. he had a very heavy forehand. His forehand was very good. He kind of drove it. He had some topspin on it, but he, he could he could drive it. Uh his backhand he shanked a lot, but it always went in. backhand was a little flippy. Yeah. But he he, and he could slice, and he had a very good first serve. Second serve was pretty hittable, and when you would come in on him, he had every patching shot. He had cross court, he had down the line, and he had topspin lobs off both sides. So, you know, when you come in against him, you better come in with a good shot. Otherwise, it, yeah, that's why the matches with he and McEnroe were great, because McEnroe was an amazing attacker, and Borg had great – You know, passing shots, and but but the the nice thing about playing Borg is he lets you play. He stood pretty far back in the court, yeah, relative to McEnroe and Connors. You know, they were both up on the baseline. You know, McEnroe coming in is whenever he could, and Connors playing very aggressive baseline tennis from right on the baseline. You know, and Borg stood further back to return. So the nice thing about playing Borg was he he gave you time to play. You never felt rushed. When I was playing kind of McEnroe and Connors, I always felt rushed. They were always like stealing your time, whether they were, you know, like McEnroe was always coming in at you. So he's, he's confronting you and trying to invade your space, you know, and Connors is playing really aggressive, taking the ball early on both sides, forehand and backhand. So. Yeah, it was a really tough dynamic playing all three of those great champions.
0: And what's the truth in that you were the first player that McEnroe said you cannot be serious?
1: Yeah, yeah. If our listeners want to get a good laugh uh, after the podcast, go on YouTube, type in John McEnroe, you cannot be serious. And that's me on the other side of this (laughs) 25, 30-second clip we played on the old court one at Wimbledon, first, mm, round, first round Wimbledon 81. And that was the summer of the baseball strike in the U.S. So there was no American baseball that summer. So obviously Wimbledon always got great coverage, but the whole focus of the U.S. press was on Wimbledon. And, you know, we had a tight match. The first two sets, I lost like 7-6, seven, 7-5. And I, I had five set points in, in the first two sets. So I could have been up two sets to love and it was like two all in the third. And, uh, the clip is, uh, I think he's serving on the, on the, uh, deuce court. He serves like hard slider down the T and he hit it right on the line. Chalk did fly up (laughs) and you see me stretching, you know, for a forehand return and just missing the ball. You know, I had the short shorts and the big hair and the whole thing. I had it all rocking pretty good there. <laughs> and uh, the, then you see McEnroe going off at this English, old English umpire. <laughs> oh, you cannot be serious. Chuck blew <laughs> up. He was changing sides. And then, you know, the whole thing, you know. And, and so then Fred Hoyles, the umpire, the, the tournament referee comes out and he has some very choice words for Fred Hoyles, you know, that I couldn't repeat uh, on this podcast. And, uh, you know, that was a year I think, yeah, yeah. We were, Timmy and I were divorced that year. We weren't playing doubles. So Dennis Ralston had asked me to play doubles with him. And my, my wife at the time, Julie was going to have our second child, you know, any day, any day now. And I kind of stupidly told Dennis, yeah, I'll play doubles with you. And, dennis Ralston was there kind of mainly coaching he was like coaching like stan smith and godfrey and stockton he had like three guys he was coaching and so you know i lose the third set six three and lose the match and you know then i i said what am i you know i got to get home to be with my wife and she has our second child so i find dennis ralston i said hey dennis you know i really sorry. I, I need to pull out of the doubles. I need to go home and be with Julie. You know, she's going to have our second baby any day and I don't want to miss it. So he goes, that's fine. You know, I'm doing all these, this coaching, uh, you know, that's good. Good luck with uh, Julie and the baby give her my best and all this. So at that time you had to go to the referee's office to officially pull out of the tournament, okay. you know, and old Fred Hoyles was just on uh, court one yesterday at Wimbledon. So I go in to pull out of the doubles and uh, walk in and Fred's sitting behind his desk there. And uh, I said, Hey, Fred, you know, I'm pulling out of the doubles. Uh, I've already talked to my partner, Dennis Ralston and he's fine with it. And, and my wife, Julie's going to have a, have a baby any day now. and They don't want to miss it. And old Freddie looks up at me and he goes, well, Tom, you know, I could find you because you're not sick or you're not injured and I kind of absorbed that for a second uh, I said well Fred you could find me you know for going home to be with my wife who's having a baby I said but I could also tell the press what McEnroe called you on court number one yesterday also <laughs> and Fred looked up at me and he goes have a nice flight home. Give my best regards to to, to Julie and good luck with the baby. <laughs> I go. You're gonna find me They're pulling out, uh, you know, to go home and be with my wife who's having our second baby, who turned out to be a beautiful girl christy and uh you know you should have defaulted McEnroe for what he said to him on center court or on court one that day so i well, called freddie i called freddie's bluff you
0: know i hope you get commissioned from McEnroe because if you'd if you'd put your hands up and said look it was on the line it was on the line we would right. have never got the you cannot be serious which must have made McEnroe a lot of money over the years that that well, comment
1: hey Danny, there's no doubt. I mean, I, I mean, they got this National Car Rental uh, commercial over here on the states where, where McEnroe's walking down with a, 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 a car, an, a, an agent. You know, they're, they're walking out in the parking lot outside, and McEnroe looks up and you cannot be serious. I so can choose any car in the aisle. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I'm like, I should be getting 10%. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. yeah Nike oh. makes a t-shirt. You cannot be serious. You know, yeah. And Rose in me. I should be getting 10% royalties on all that.
0: So. Well, let's, let's get a back payment. Let's get a, there let's get a go. campaign going.
1: Reparate reparations. You know? yeah. Let's go.
0: I could talk to you honestly all day. You're, you're I got to run.
1: Actually, I got to go make somebody I, better.
0: And that's, and that's my, th- but I do have to do our quick fire round. Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Davis Cup. Should it be best of three sets or best of five at slams for men?
1: Best of five.
0: Forehand or backhand? Forehand. Serve or return? Serve. Singles or doubles? Singles. Borg or McEnroe? McEnroe. Roger or Rafa? Roger. Should there be an injury timeout or not?
1: Uh, yes.
0: What's one rule change you would have in tennis?
1: No lets. And no, no two, no lets and no leaving the court after the set. Well
0: you you used to have a shower?
1: Huh? Yeah. it's not there for five sets for Christ's sake.
0: And who should our next guest be on control the controllables?
1: Mm, That's a good question, Dan. I'll tell you it's pretty interesting is Andy Brandy. He's got a lot of stories. Yeah. The coach of your uh, LSU LSU Tigers. Yeah, Andy's great.
0: We'll have to get him and you mentioned Jim Lair at the start of the start before off, off air. Is there is there any chance we can get him on?
1: legend tell me you're in the fog club the fog club is a friend of gully
0: <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna reach out to you to get that connection and that's how i'll introduce you got myself. It.
1: i'll i'll send it to you
0: it has been brilliant brilliant talking thank you so much for your time everyone is going to love that that's a one for the ages for everyone to listen back story after story thanks so much for giving your time thanks up.
1: dan great uh, great talking to you and good luck with uh, with everything with your academy
0: if you ever over this way, there's always a place. So I'd love to get and strike a few on the red clay coats with you.
1: Love it. Let's go. Let's do it. I heard care, your Kate. backhand's a little suspect, so you know, <laughs> I'm ready to attack it. <laughs> there's,
0: there's more than my backhand that's suspect.
1: <laughs> okay, as long as there's a drink afterward, we're good.
0: Absolutely, it's a it's a date. Take care. Thanks. Kyle. All right. See you, bud. Wow. A big, big thank you to Tom for for coming on the show that that truly was an, an incredible conversation to be a part of and as always I've got Vicky next to me to to unpack this one and I would imagine that wasn't an easy one to edit
2: no um it was it was incredibly easy and incredibly difficult at the same time I don't even know where to start with that really I cried I laughed um, what an amazing storyteller he was.
0: Yeah, and, and that would be, I guess, my number one takeaway, actually. What a, what an incredible man he was. And, you know, for him to, to come on the show it really was an honour for him to share such heartfelt stories about somebody who obviously has never left his side and his brother Tim. And for him to open up like that, for him to... To bring story after story, not only about Tim, but about himself and about his his tennis world, was was a real treat. And yeah, and and I guess it goes back to that thing again. It's it first and foremost be a good person. You know, he's had he's had massive success as a tennis player, but also as a tennis coach. And as we saw, you know, managing your Sampras, your Agassi, your Chang, you know, your Couriers. You know these difficult characters who are number one in the world but he's able to do that because he's just a good decent human being so a real a real pleasure to have that conversation.
2: I found myself yesterday telling so many stories that he talked about to my friends and then he said this and then he was the guy that McEnroe played when he said you cannot be serious he's just been involved in so many amazing moments in U.S. tennis history really
0: he has and and i actually sent him a voice note and we have had a couple of messages since the since the episode and i and i thanked him because when i've found when i've been retelling the stories it's almost as if he's passed on the emotion to me of the stories and i think that is the sign of a good storyteller you know yeah. i i was with him everywhere And and when I then went to tell those stories as well, you know, I found myself welling up as if I'd been in his position, you know, and really, really powerful the way that he did it. And also very powerful the way that him and his brother came from pretty much nothing. And I I love that story about how they won the money, you know, with the local the local university boys and and managed to, to make it to the top of the world without any coaching. You know, incredible.
2: Surely that couldn't happen in this day and age. No individual tennis lessons and reaching the heights that they did.
0: I think it's 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 a it's a big challenge. I, I definitely think things have become a lot more professional. The game's advanced in in lots of ways, but I think it does bring home to me getting that balance, you know, and having that balance of valuing every time you go onto the court. And valuing every ball that you do hit. And I think we do live in such a structured society now that it's almost like I'm just playing tennis again, you know, and almost going through the motions because that's just what that's what I do on a Tuesday night. Whereas I would imagine those boys growing up, they were finding ways to get onto the court and every time they did get onto the court, then it was, it was special. And, and that ability to then put that energy into every single ball that they hit. And, you know, maybe there is some lessons to learn. But no, in, in answer to your question, I don't think it happens without any coaching or without any structure. However, maybe we do all need to try and find a bit of a balance on that.
2: But the fact that there was two of them, I mean, that must have been such a big advantage. They've got a, com- a constant competitor all the time they're trying to beat
0: yeah well you would know that I mean you played tennis with your sister did was that a, was that a help or a hindrance
2: well I was the u- oldest one so it was probably I was probably the target for my sister but um, she's yeah she's the only person that I've ever played against and knowingly cheated I changed the score she won the first set six four and she went to walk to the net and I went nope it's juice knowing that we'd have to go back to a score that we agreed on yeah that was shocking by me I didn't admit it many years later but she uh
0: is that is this an is that an is that an exclusive?
2: <laughs> well, I'm certainly not condoning it. It was terrible by me and I apologize again to my sister Louise for taking that moment away from you. You won that set fair and square. She didn't win another one though. It's definitely an edge. I think sibling rivalry is is a benefit always. I think I think but um yeah, she pushed me. I did not want to give her anything. So I'm sure I pushed her to get better and she pushed me to kind of keep ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah and 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 then like I mean for them to go on and make a Wimbledon final and you know to have everything that they have and 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 then obviously you go back to 1995 and it's very very clear to me that Tom has had Tim next to him for the last 25, 26 years. He's still there with him every single day. Uh, It's obviously, it was a tragic loss at the time, but they, they certainly have an incredible special bond.
2: Yeah, you could certainly feel the love and respect and, and admiration he had for his brother, Tim. He told some lovely stories about Tim, didn't he? I uh, was actually trying to explain the other day about that moment when Sampras was crying on the court in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open against Jim Courier. I love that story that Tom said about that they were out together the night before for dinner, before they played the match, um, to show their support to Tim. Um I'm sure many of you will will remember that moment when Sampras was crying on court and how, I mean, he wasn't just crying, was he? He was sobbing and uh, the commentators at the time didn't know why. I remember so vividly watching Sampras um, at the back of the court serving. I'm sure he still knocked down some aces um, and also at the change of ends sitting in his seat just sobbing. And I don't know if you remember, but Korea actually checked to see if Pete was all right and offered to come back the next day to finish the match. Um, Sampras obviously declined and uh, came back from two sets to Love Down to beat Korea in five. That was everywhere at the time. And um, it was lovely to hear kind of the background to that story.
0: No, it was and And, and to, to move into my last thing, I've had a few people reach out to me about the David Mullins podcast and I know I had quite an emotive rant Um, you know I'd like to think that it was a little bit better than a rant but maybe it was a rant around tournament structure in Ireland and I had a plea to to the clubs in Ireland, and I've had people ask me what what my opinion is on that, you know. And actually, as it happens, Tom Gullickson, who's worked for the USDA, also mentioned that we've had Nick Wheel from the LTA, we've had Dave Sammel who talked about that, you know. We've had many guests that have brought that up, and I guess my my thoughts are being crystallized more and more as I do these podcasts and. My learning has is, is been just incredible. I feel very fortunate to have it and just to be able to put into my philosophies and then understand really clearly what I think. And I guess where, where my thoughts would be on tournament structure, it's the starting point of our sport, you know, and I think when we talk about if I want to go and play golf, I want to go and play the game of golf you know from there if i'm not playing well enough i'm losing my money to my mates then i might go and get some coaching to try and make improvements but the starting point will always be the game and 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 i think if you are a nation that has the ability to provide a tournament structure and competition structure all the way from very young, all the way through to the professional game, then I think that has to be the starting point of any program that is put in place. You know, that is, it goes almost without saying for me now, having listened to all of these people, coaching is not the sport. Tennis is the sport. Let's get our kids playing. Let's give opportunities for adults to play. Let's give opportunities for professionals to play. And then from there, the whole ecosystem within your national country that you're from will start to grow because people will fall in love with the sport we'll have more and more people playing, more and more coaching jobs, more and more jobs in tennis shops and equipment and physios and, you know, there's so many other roles that come from it. And and I guess that would be where my, my passionate thoughts do lie on the tournament structures. And it's not just specific for Ireland, that's certainly in any nation that it would be. So um, anybody that was curious on my thoughts on that, I hope that helps.
2: And we've got an exciting week this week for the podcast, as we've got um, not only um, a new Instagram page, but also a shiny new website as well.
0: And yeah, I mean it's it's fantastic. And the, the guys that have brought the Instagram page together and the and the website together, I have to say a big shout out to yourself, Vicky, and also to Faye from Soto Tennis Academy who has done a great job. And you can you can find us as of now, you know, on CTC. Dot podcast is where our Instagram page would be, and our website is www.controlthecontrollables.co.uk and yeah it, it's exciting you know this the podcast continues to grow the interest continues to grow and I think there's going to be some great things that we're going to be able to come through on the website and the Instagram page so please do reach out you'll be able to get a hold of us very easily on that we'll also be having the new email address which we'll let you know about in the next podcast but until the next time I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables